E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Marie Veyron of Chateau Bourgneuf and then also Le Bernardin, where she's a sommelier. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Olivia. How are you? Very nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So you were born in 1985. Yes. I'm born in Pomerol, right bank of Bordeaux. What was that like? Being yeah. born? What was that? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but I mean, what was it like as a kid? I think it went well. <laughs> How was it like? It was, uh, so I was surrounded by the vineyard, Chateau Bourneuf. I'm the seventh generation and the, the third kid. It's been, uh, I didn't realize how lucky I was. To me, it was very quiet. It was a very uh, small village. You have only one butcher, one bakery. It's not even it's not even a street. You see only vines everywhere. Pomol is pretty flat. You have just a, a little plateau, maybe only forty meters high, and you don't see you don't see a lot of people, or you see always the same people. So it seemed to me very boring. But I always loved the cycle of the vine and following up with that and being involved with that. As a, as a kid during the harvest and then growing up doing more stuff in the cellar with my father. So um, it's how I got involved into wine in a, in a very natural way and following up my father and being with them also for lunch. And uh, because my mother wouldn't leave me at school for the lunch, so I, I would go back. I was lucky. I was really lucky, I, I feel. I would be uh, at home to have my lunch with them and uh, listening to them already speaking about wine all the time, all the time, all the time. It's not boring. It was boring at some point. Sometimes I hated it. But looking back at it, it, I learned a lot already there because I was already smelling in their glass and I was already having a little, little micro sip. What was your dad like? I mean, what is he like? He is like a farmer. So my father doesn't travel. If you want to see him, you have to go there. He has no cell phone either no email. So it's like a, a prehistoric uh, <laughs> animal. <laughs> um, but it, it, it will teach you a lot about the story of the appellation, the story of the vineyard. Um, he's a real farmer anxious in the way that I remember he's always looking at the sky, always worried about the next day, the next hour when it's getting rainy. Um, if some hail is coming, if the veraison is not happening, well, he's always looking at 
at the sky and and I have already this souvenir of him very very anxious that's why it didn't really seem appealing to me to work with wine to make wine to me it seemed very uh, a source of anxiety but when did that switch happen I mean when did you because now you work with wine every day so yes the fact to go away from Pomerol I moved to Paris to study journalism it was interesting but lack of sense to me. So I was, I was missing something. Um, I was missing content. And, uh, and I found myself very, quite lost. Good to, to be successful with my studies. Okay, it went well, but no job at the end, necessary. So uh, after my license in uh, journalism in Paris, I went back to Bordeaux and applied and started this study about wine marketing in a business school. So I wanted to to mix my, my skills in journalism in, uh, and in marketing and in business, but to wine. So it, how I went back to wine and being again in Bordeaux, it's been challenging for me because I was happy at the very first place to leave Bordeaux. But I went back and I think we, I started little by little to like it again, to love it again. Do you think there have been some changes in the meantime? I mean, being born in 85, I feel like for the right bank, that, that was a period of real ascension for the wines in a wine economy i can imagine that there would be a lot of changes yes it was a, it was a good it was a good time for bordeaux both banks it was a very good time early early 90s also a change in the vineyard some harvest machine we, you, you you wouldn't see anymore some big machine for instance after the end of 80s so the quality also evolved in a certain way more precision in the vineyard but Economically wise, it was like a big, a big blossom. It was a, uh, it was excellent. I remember. I was, of course, I was little, but I remember the parties at home. I remember the parties in in the entire region. The Bordeaux was re- living really well, very, very well. It was like a golden time. I feel. Did you have contact with the previous generation? I mean, did you know your grandparents? Yes, I saw my grandfather working with my father since I was in the vineyard at 14 years old. So um, I was too little maybe to speak about wine with my grandfather, though. But I saw him involved and working with my father, yes. Because it seems like in the right bank, I mean, for me, for a guy who's never been to Bordeaux, right? Just an, Yes. Uh, it, it seems like... When are a, you coming? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not soon enough. <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of small family ownership parcels in Pomerol compared to Bordeaux as a whole. Yes, it's definitely um, it's definitely family oriented because of the size. It's the size is still like a farmer size. We have nine hectares, uh, mostly uh, they are divided in four parcels, and the average of uh, per producer in Pomol is about five hectares per producer. It's only one fifty winemakers. It's it's small. You know everybody. You know everybody, and uh, you have some, but you don't have a lot of big investors. I think Pomol preserved. So far, and I hope it will last, preserved pretty well its identity and its, uh, its doors open, but not to everybody. No, why do you think that that is? Like, why Pomerol in particular for that kind of ownership? Because it's not uh, everywhere. Yeah. I think the, the spirit of the family is quite strong. It becomes difficult when the children disagree and wants, one of them wants to sell, and the, the, the two other or the other one cannot buy the, the other part. But I feel like the spirit, it may be so naive, but, but really the spirit of the family, the family are, are very strong there. And even the, the, the less known chateau, 
in Pomerol definitely fight. Even if they are not that known, they are approached by big investors and they, they fight to keep it, even if they don't make a lot of money of their wine. There's some sense of a continuity, like you guys have, like the seven generations. Yes, that's a, yes, exactly. Also, it's a matter of, of being, uh, being aware about what you have uh, in your hands. And th- this kind of family always did wine. What do you want? What could they do after? Buy a, a big house in a Cap Ferret or Arcachon, and uh, they would be bored. Like my father, if, if he would stop, he would never, sorry, retire. It's, it's impossible. And those families are the same. They, they cannot stop making wine. So when you got back, were there things that had already changed between when you left and when you got back? Did you notice changes in your own region? Definitely more investors, definitely more, but mostly on the left bank. And also the architecture. The landscape changed a lot, like the, with big cellars, with fancy uh, architecture. Some of them are beautiful, some of them are a little less. But this definitely was a real change. It doesn't mean I didn't see them before, because from Paris I was coming back quite often and enjoying to be uh, in Pomol again. I was missing Pomol. But living in Bordeaux and in the region itself, yes, because I was visiting wineries every weekend almost, being received by all the big communication PR services. It was not being received by uh, a winemaker itself or, or the family, depending on where you are, of course. But most of the time, I remember, because of the program I was doing at school, we were hosted by, by PR service, PR department, not by the winemaker anymore. So that must have been a big different view of Bordeaux for you. Yes, it was a very, um, maybe a more industrial way. And I was happy to be back in Bordeaux, but actually I was not uh, that happy with the, the program. It was, still, it was still a little far from wine. It was very business-oriented. It was a wine marketing, right? Yes, totally. At that time. Yes. But so for understanding Pomerol as a place where wine is made, your property is next to Trottenois, right? Yes, we're a neighbor. It's one of my favorite wine. Mine too, so, actually. I thought the yes. wine was great. Yeah, yes. like I really like the still today. You know, I'm not. Yes. I don't drink Bordeaux every day, but I think right, right now I'm, <laughs> I, I like those wines. It's a beautiful classic of the appellation to me, and uh, I really, I really love also Christian Wax. I love this kind of, of philosophy as, as vigneron. Uh, so we're right next to Trottanois, uh, at the center of the appellation, at the end of the plateau. So um, we are surrounded by Trottanois, a little bit of Chateau La Cabane, but that we don't know really well in New York, and a little bit of Chateau Nena also, which has different parcels. And so if I were to better understand what that means in terms of the soil types, because they're varied, right, in Pomerol? Yes, even if it's very small, it's a beautiful patchwork of different kind of uh, clays and gravels. Being close to um, Trottanois, we have one parcel that touch the vines of Trottanois, we share those beautiful gravels. We share this also beautiful blue clay. And then uh, this very specific crasse de fer. So um, you find crasse de fer also in Tuscany, but uh, I think that's it. And this is this oxidized iron that could apparently give this black truffle component when Pomol gets uh, some age. Oh, okay. So there's a little bit of a red soil and there's a blue soil. Absolutely, yes. Are those fermented separately or...? Yes, we ferment the parcel separately. My father uh, did it, but not necessarily every year. But my sister, since she arrived in 08 to work with my father, she's doing that per parcel. Because that would be interesting to taste the differences. 
Yes, yeah. of course. We have to. We have to. And uh, and she created a second wine, so also it's, it helps to identify really well the best parcel. It's nine hectares, right? Total? Nine hectares, yeah. Well, in a good year, it will be 35,000 bottles. In a good year. What have been the good years? What are some of your personal favorites? My favorite, I love one. I really love one, and I think it was so uh, underestimated, but it it's opening up so well now. And uh, I prefer one than two thousand, for instance. Like I love two thousand things. I'm I'm more into this kind of vintage, with a, maybe less. Uh, yeah, of course, less heat, not a less ripeness, but Merlot is so important. Which uh, we kept freshness and acidity. I love those those vintages. Nine ten, uh, beautiful, of course, but we just need to forget them for now. There. There is no interest to open them now. But 12, 12 has something interesting. And actually, I'm surprised, but I, I enjoy when I open a 12 lately. It's not ready, but it, it's showing quite elegant already. Is there a style for Pomerol in general? And then there, is there a Borg New style? Like, are those two different things? Or? I think Bonhoeff style is very close to Pomerol style. To me, it's the expression of a juicy and velvet uh, Merlot. It has uh, it has also this black currant and blackberries component. It has with age the black truffle to me is it's stunning. We have it a lot in Bonaf. We definitely have it a lot, and I'm lucky enough to taste a lot with my mother when I go back to to Pomerol and she and she of course exchanged so many wines with the other winemakers. I can taste Pomerol with age, and Trotanois can have this black truffle too, but I find it a lot in Bonaf. So I would say Bonaf has its black truffle, yes, very strong. But the texture is a classic of Pomerol, with weight on your tongue, long finish, and very silky texture. So it's about 80-90% Merlot, right? Yeah, 90, 90 Merlot, 10 Cabernet Franc. My sister Frédéric would like to raise up the percentage of Cabernet Franc, just to 15. It's not a big, uh, <laughs> it's not a big change, but it means a lot because it's dealing with my father, you know. It's not easy to work in, uh, with your parents. What do you think Pomerol contributes to the grape variety? What does it bring to Merlot? It sounds maybe too obvious, but yes, Pomerol has this beautiful clay, uh, the smected clay, the blue clay, that allowed the Merlot to not overripe also, that keep freshness for the Merlot. It's, uh, I always hear that it's easy to grow Merlot, that it's a grape that, that grows itself, that makes the wine itself. But it's, it's easy to make a jam very fast. So um, we need this soil of Pomerol to make this kind of Merlot. It's totally related. It's totally connected. The specificity of this Merlot, it's thanks to the clay. And you have, of course, this beautiful expression of Merlot when you get at the top of the plateau with your Chateau Sertan, with Sertan uh, de May, with uh, Petrus, of course, if you can taste it. Trotanois again, of course. It's interesting with Pomerol because there's no classification like you'd find for the left bank or for Santa Million. So does that imply that the people are different there? Like, does it imply that there's more community or does it imply that there's less hierarchy within the social strata? Or On a daily life, I don't know if it implies, if, if it changed anything, but it definitely contributes to the identity of Pomerol. We always stepped out this classification uh, uh, call. And I'm glad, I'm glad we did. I'm glad the Sandica Viticol stayed strong on that and didn't, because of course there were many temptations to create small groups within the appellation of the five prestigious Pomerol, the club of, uh, etc. But it, it's always stayed like this without classification. I think it's 
it's part of a huge identity of, of the appellation. I don't know if it changed something, but to to be maybe it changed in a way that it's it makes Pomol different than Bordeaux. And Bordeaux had a hard time lately, and I think Pomol stayed maybe more approachable with that. So now that you work in the American market, because a lot of times with Pomerol, we hear that a lot of the wines go to the northern countries and like Belgium. Yes. And maybe there's a traditional audience in England. But I think here, even with the esteem for Petrus and even with the big points that are given to properties like Trotonois and the wines there, I mean, you don't see the wines that much, right? Or do you? No, you're, you're, you're right. I don't see Pomol a lot, actually. And when I speak to guests, I'm, um, they don't necessarily know Pomol. Uh, if I say Saint-Emilion, so I say Saint-Emilion right away, I say Pomol is next to, next to Saint-Emilion, the neighbor appellation. Oh, yes, of course, Saint-Emilion, we know. But Pomol is still not very well known here. It's a matter of, of quantity, maybe, of volume. I think for me... Speaking to you, you know, I have an idea of what Pomerol is that's really pretty much wholly defined by the wines I've had. But what's it like to like live there? I think you have to uh, you have to have good friends, good books. <laughs> it's a very it's it's a farmer life like uh, like anywhere else. I think in a in a very small village. But what is impressive is to have this farmer life, and at some point to seeing those people coming from everywhere. So even if you stay on site, taking care of your vine, you have actually, and it's not a joke, the entire world coming to visit you. And that was really the, the, funny, the funny part at home because my father always told, that's why I don't need any cell phone. People are coming, that's fine. I don't need to travel and I don't have time. I'm making my wine. I don't have time to travel if they want to see me. They come and that's it. So it's... It would be paced by this kind of tasting of visits. Otherwise, it's all about your vines. But living in Pomola, of course, it's beautiful. You have a very unique light, especially at the end of the afternoon, always a little pink. This is a very unique light in Pomola, and it's beautiful to grow up there. But it's quiet. <laughs> but you have this whole other life, and a lot of it has to do with restaurants and, uh, and meeting people from around the world. So how did the restaurant side of your life get started? I got involved in restaurant during the summer when I was I was in Saint Emilion. I needed to make money for the summer, and I worked um, I worked at Lambert du Décor. I was back then so student in Paris, just spending the summer at, at home in Pomerol. And uh, Lambert du Décor in Saint Emilion, a great place to to taste other wines than Bordeaux wines. It's really where I started to. To love also the restaurant atmosphere, the environment, the, the boiling energy you feel on the floor. So I was a waitress, so I was not involved in wine, but I was tasting already with the sommelier. There, there was a sommelier and a wine buyer. And I was also seeing all the winemakers because they were coming for lunch there. It was a very good cuisine, a very simple brasserie cuisine. And tasting a lot with the sommelier, with the owner, François Delignerie's. So it was my first experience with restaurant industry. Very, uh, uh, very dynamic. A lot of covers, a lot of tourists, a lot of wine people as well. So it was a, a beautiful mix of uh, of audience. Then I got involved in restaurant in, uh, industry in Paris. I worked with Le Bristol, Le Pavillon Le Doyen, so a lot of Michelin star places, the Shangri-La Hotel, Guy Martin as well. So it was more fancy. Must have been exciting as a young person. Yeah, it was really exciting. I was 
I was organizing wine dinner, wine, wine conferences, wine, a lot of wine pairings for, for private members. In, in, and, I, and we were choosing those places, changing almost every month. So I did that for three years to uh, select the winemakers that would come to Paris. I would taste with them. We, w- we would speak with the chef and them about the wine pairings. It was, it was amazing. It was like, this was my real training. This was my school. Uh, La Sorbonne, the journalism, that was interesting but boring to me. Lack of sense again. And this, this real experience was, was the best. Because I don't know what it's like in France. I mean, I think here there has been a celebrity culture of vigneron where people are celebrities. But what was it like being a French person working with French vigneron? Are they considered celebrities or are they considered... Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. It really belongs to, uh, to uh, the market of New York to see wine as uh, so fancy. Not only New York, but the Chinese market, of course, also. But in France, no, I don't feel this, uh, this big aura around the, the profession. Maybe it, it will come because it's what happened with chef. With chef and with the cuisine side, yes, it's like we always hear this term, you know, of rock star. Uh, and I'm sure the, the sommelier part will arrive with that. But so far, it's very old school. And I, I used to work in Paris with Philippe Forbrac, best sommelier of the world in 92. So very old school uh, sommelier, Enrico Bernardo, also one of the best sommeliers of the world. So it's, it's what I, I learned from them. So I saw um, a kind of nice but severe side of the sommelier job. In a French restaurant, you, I mean, yes, in Paris, the, the, the sommelier, I feel, are still, they are on the floor, but you don't feel them too much. You don't see them too much. I'm more talking maybe about Michelin star places huh? compared to here when I am at Le Brandin, We are involved in the team. We are involved on the floor. We, we're part of the table almost. And, and people want that. People want interaction they ask a lot of questions they they want you for every single course that's that's beautiful yes but we are wow so involved and i feel like this is much more quiet much more uh, discreet on any michelin star floor in france restaurants in europe in general they value a sense of calm and uh, this is not the case in in, uh, at least in new york restaurants where they value a sense of excitement you know to go out yeah you know it's a show it's a show. <laughs> but it's interesting when you're at the four-star level because I feel like th- there's still the fusion of the two. Like yes. w- where you see both sides. So how did it end up that you ended up working in New York at La Bernadette? So I arrived three years ago starting at, uh, at Le Colonial. I was done with Paris. It was getting so slow economically-wise. So um, I wanted to change. I needed to change. I needed to open up again my wine knowledge to go on another market. I had a, a beautiful experience years ago in New York already, and I'm, I remember loving the, the energy of the city. I remember also loving the, the choice and the offer of this uh, wine market here. Which had to be both of those things very different to how you grew up. Yes, absolutely. Totally different. Totally. I was, I was so ignorant. When I arrived here and I saw certain wine lists, I saw uh, going to the wine testing for the trade, etc. I was, I was learning so much and, and realizing how how little I knew, really. I started at Le Colonial, old French-Vietnamese restaurant. It's Jean Goutal, the owner, who really made me come to New York. I was buying the wine for the restaurant, also being an assistant manager, getting more familiar with the real organization itself of a restaurant. I spent a year there, and then great opportunity, meeting Aldo Som for an interview, to be part of the sommelier team for the opening of the wine bar, Aldo Som Wine Bar. 
So this was my real opportunity to experience the sommelier job, the sommelier position. So I went, we opened uh, two years ago, and uh, and stay, I stayed one year on that floor, and then I've been promoted to Le Bernardin floor. So how are those two things different? I mean, when you worked at the Aldo Slam wine bar, what was that experience like? And then how is that different at Le Bernardin? You have demanding clientele in both places, and it's what I love. But it's definitely it's definitely more casual on the Ataldo Samoan bar, and it's what you want when you go to a wine bar. Huh? You don't want to be, you want to relax. You just finished your day at work, you you had a ton of emails. You just want to to forget now, and enjoy. And it was our role to to be uh, friendly with guests. Le Bernardin doesn't mean we're not friendly with guests. We are, but but we have to keep a certain distance, maybe. And the cuisine is the main element of this floor. Aldo Samoan Bar, you have some tapas, some soft snack. And of course, it's signed by Eric Ripper as well. But Le Bernardin is the first highlight. is is Chef Eric Ripper and the cuisine itself. So the sommelier is more than important. But I think we have to keep a certain distance in terms of behavior as well. And then you start to create something, of course. But um, different, a, a huge difference, of course, because it's a wine list of more than 2,000 wines with a very uh, beautiful Burgundy uh, references. It's a very classic list. And the wine bar is, uh, has more, um, not adventurous wine, but more um, curiosities, maybe, because you want, to, you want to engage a real discussion also with guests. So you want to bring them where they, where they about nothing they never heard of. That's the inclination for you. That's what you're interested in doing. Yes. Oh, I love. Yeah, I love that. My what I prefer when I open a bottle and the guest is happy. That's my. That's my. Uh, that's the best. That's. A, I love that. I love this feeling. But especially when you open something, the guest didn't know at all. And it doesn't mean you are, you don't want to open what you want to drink. It's always about the guest, of course. But listening to him, and we have a difference of culture. We don't use the same words for the same uh, meaning sometimes it's tricky to speaking about a dry or a sweet wine or i mean we all have different terms the and the culture on the top of that is bringing sometimes certain confusion but once you read your guests and you open the bottle he he will enjoy and he will remember and he take a picture and he, he order it the next time that's the best part I mean, I feel like that's an experience that you've had in your own life because the wines that you were exposed to when you were younger were a definite set. And now yes, you're working yes. in a very diverse market where you're always encountering new things. It's exactly the same pattern. If I was still in Bordeaux today, I would drink Bordeaux every day. And uh, I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know, I think, a lot of other wines. But coming to New York, I mean, in Paris, of course, I tasted other wines, but Foreign wines are not really present on the Parisian stage. Unfortunately, I hope it will change with maybe a new generation of sommelier, but you drink French wines in France. So it's really when I arrived in New York three years ago that I've been introduced to these wines. Were there moments where you were like, oh, okay, I didn't know that this kind of thing even existed or this is really special um, for me? Of course, I knew California, but I'm, I really underestimated, to be honest, I, I really underestimated California. I saw California always as as big, as powerful, as one block, as uh, the kind of wine you you eat at the same time. What you cannot have more than a glass, you cannot have more than three sips. And I was uh, having this this really uh, close-minded French uh, speech. 
So having the chance to taste more from California, having the chance also to travel there, to do Harvard there at Santa Barbara, at Sandy in Domaine de la Côte, it's, it opened up a, a new area of knowledge. Oh, so you did Harvest in Santa Barbara? Yes. What was yeah. that like? It was intense. It was intense. Uh, it was in 2015, so big hit. So they were picking at night, and me, I would help in the cellar with the, with the winemaker also, John Faulkner, and Roger Parra, of course, and Sashi Mormon. So it was, uh, it was good. I felt like going back to my childhood. What did you learn from Sashi and John? Definitely another way to make wine. A more Burgundy style to make wine. And what I pick up the most, it's maybe to, to let the wine go. To not trying to over-control. There is no right or wrong, but I think in Bordeaux we try to control a lot. We have a lot of uh, also of consultants. It's not bad. Uh, it depends for who, for, for what you want to make. But what I learned, and I was, uh, I was surprised by that, because Rajet really told me, oh, what do you want to, to change? Let's wine do, uh, not itself, but a little bit less interventionist from what I, I knew. I knew wine with a lot of, uh, not necessarily, not at home though, but I saw wine made with a lot of, um, of control, of worries as well, that it, it wouldn't make it the, till the end of the fermentation or what. And there I saw, okay, no added yeast, no chemicals, nothing, and it went well. I think you recently did some traveling back in France, right? Yes, yes. So what was that like? I tried to drink as much as Bordeaux as I could <laughs> because I don't drink Bordeaux here in New York. It's too expensive. Who has the space to have wine at home? Honestly, I have, I have some, of course, but I cannot let them age. So I tried really to taste a lot of Bordeaux, to taste a lot with my parents, to taste a lot with my sister as well because they drink much more Bordeaux than me. They have a much more uh, sharp Bordeaux palette than me. I have it from my childhood, but I need to train myself more and more. And did you go to Dutrev? I went to Dutrev. Beautiful, uh, beautiful day. It was maybe, we didn't, uh, I didn't expect that. We spent maybe 10 hours together. 10? Yes, 10. I think I never had as much as Beaujolais that, that day. Beautiful to meet his daughter, Ophélie Dutrev. They work really well together. Meeting also Alex Foilard, the son, and seeing this new generation of Fleury. We were in Fleury and so small, it, it reminded me Pomerol actually. A church, a school, a butcher, a bakery, that's it. But a life. There, there was this bar. Uh, after visiting Jean-Louis Dutrève, tasting with him in his cellar, um, Les Grives, of course, yeah, and it was beautiful to taste Les Grives with him. We went in this um, main place, uh, like church place, you know, where you had this brasserie, and we, we met with the other children of winemakers there, so with uh, Alex Wallard, for instance, and we opened so many different Beaujolais. It was like an in-depth study of Beaujolais. Compared to Pomerol, maybe, or to Bordeaux, there was definitely a life in Fleury. Because of this main place, because of this brasserie, wow. This was different to me to see another small village, but with, with uh, yes, with uh, a lot of life. So I think a lot of people, career-wise, would have found it hard to make the jump from like Colonial to working at Le Bernardin. 
So how did it happen for you and how's the adjustment been? I was also at the end of my experience at Le Colonial. I was at the end of a first visa. So naturally, this was either I would go back to France or somewhere else. Either I would go further in this, uh, in this city. And I, I wanted to stay. Uh, one year is, is nothing here. It's like one week. You, 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 you don't do anything. So um, thanks to, uh, to being involved in La, in La Pole in San Francisco, when I arrived here, I connected with so many people. I met so many people. And I didn't really want to I didn't really want to do that. It happened really naturally. I didn't want to be that person, you know, who push, who push, who push to be introduced to, to him or her because it might happen something good to you or it's good to be connected with them. I didn't do that. But yes, I met people. I remember that's when we met. That's specifically Exa- when we met. Yes, exactly. And I didn't feel that you were uh, you're just kind of an open person that seemed nice to talk to. Is what my memory of that. Good. Encounter. Thank you <laughs> for that. So, like all those other people who push, push to meet me. No, <laughs> not true, actually. I'm sure there are a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> More yeah. than you think. Sure, sure. <laughs> and um, and it's how I've been introduced to Aldo. So, what was the interview like with Aldo? Like, what did he ask you? It's fast. It's fast, like Aldo some is, and uh, straight to the point. Some question about wine, of course, but your background, quite classic. It's about a feeling more than a... Because wine, of course, you need, you need some references, some knowledge, but you, you keep learning all the time and it's changing all the time, so you have to adjust yourself so many, so often. Uh, but it was more a feeling, and this feeling definitely happened, and I feel like this interview was yesterday with him, so it, it went quick. And I had the answer the day after, so ready to start. And what's he like as a boss, if I can ask? Uh, but you're asking, so <laughs> it's. Um, I feel like it's uh, more being with a friend in a good way. There is no, it's not uh, laid back or casual, but the, it's it's more a friendly relationship. You um, you you learn a lot watching at watching at him. He has. He has, uh, I thought Austrian people, because I, I love, uh, I, don't, I don't love cliché, but as a French person, sometimes I refer too much to cliché. And I thought that Austrian people would be a little austere and, uh, and uh, not really warm. He's, he's more Latin than me. Uh, he loves to laugh, I think. He loves to laugh a lot. He loves Gruner Wettliner too much, definitely. He should drink much more Bordeaux. It's a personal message that I wanted to make public. <laughs> But I feel like you guys have uh, collaborated on things like that, like you did a collaborative tasting that way. Yes, and it's what uh, I love to to do more, of course. I think it's interesting. And it reflects definitely for him and me how we we open up at some point our career to another market like New York, being open to other wines. I'm open to Grenier-Vetlinery, he's open to Bordeaux. But I think it represents also our different backgrounds in a similar, uh, in a similar uh, goal. Eric Repair likes uh, Bordeaux a lot, right? Yes. It's one of my main uh, strengths on the floor to sell Bordeaux wines. So uh, I try <laughs> to seduce tables, telling, uh, you know, Chef Eric Repair, one of the favorite wines of Chef Repair is Bordeaux. And I actually love drinking Bordeaux with fish, definitely. And and you and it works so well. It works well. You keep the skin. It's grilled. It's smoky. You have a thick sauce. That's it. And if the wine is good, if the cuisine is uh, good, 
uh, that it works. It works. It's, you don't have to, to, to make a, a headache of, uh, of it. It has to be simple. When you have both great elements, that's natural. So I think a lot of people listening, or maybe just a lot of people that I encounter in my life, are very curious about what the four-star sommelier experience is like. What do you think working in a, the four-star, three-star Michelin kind of place is like for you as um, a sommelier? It can sound very intimidating. Uh, also, we, we wear a uniform. We are in black. It can be impressive for the guest who is not used to, to come at this uh, Michelin star for uh, New York Times places. We use also the test of So it's uh, the first time I had to use the test of I have to tell you, it's been very uh, challenging for me because uh, in France, you would see test of in every old houses but we use them uh, as ashtray. So the first time I had to use the test to taste, literally, with it at the table, I couldn't help to have this vision of my father using the test as an ashtray. It's another story. It's a great experience, how to be confident, how to uh, manage pressure. But people, most, most of the time, are there to enjoy. So um, you feel pressure because... You know you have to maintain a certain level, uh, a high level of uh, of excellence, a level of excellence in service and everything. So you put pressure yourself. Huh? It's not something we we had from uh, from the team huh, at all. Um, it's intimidating, but you you get used to it as everything else. If I were about thirty one like you, and I were a young woman, I could see working on the team of Maggie Lacoste as being kind of inspirational because she's kind of a strong female figure. Is that a fair statement? Or? It's fair. I love the fact she's still there. And uh, I love the fact to see her in the restaurant. I love she she's such a charisma. It's, uh, it's beautiful to see, to see a woman at the, at the head of this restaurant still being so involved in the place and being such a reference also. I think it's very representative of the New York market, open to women. I love that. I don't think I, I... I wouldn't like to do my job in France. Not today. It's a chance to be a woman here, I think. We don't realize it, but I think it's, it's a big deal. And, uh, and yes, being in the team of Maggie Locos, it definitely makes uh, make sense to me in this way. How was it with the customers? I know when I worked four-star myself, it took me a while to like understand what the people wanted at that level. Yeah. Um, what do they expect? They expect the best. They expect the best. They're, they're, and it, I think it, it belongs more to New York, to, to this market. They, people here want the best all the time for everything in different areas, and they want to be the best. So when they arrive at Le, even uh, regular people or tourists or, or the person who come to celebrate something, they want the best experience. And without even uh, noticing it, it has to be effortless it, it has to be smooth what have been the biggest challenges for you so far the level of wine knowledge maybe that's uh, funny to say that you know because uh i think a lot of americans would be like well i didn't grow up in wine i didn't grow <laughs> up at a winery so i don't really know but you know like that's our that's our thing that we often overcompensate for by learning all these facts right yeah you learn you learn really well i think here i have with me in my blood this winemaking past i mean Seeing all the everything from the winemaking, but the, all the theory part, it's here that I learn actually. So, um, what was the question again? Oh, what, um, the big, 
<laughs> what the bigger challenges were. The level of wine knowledge, I think a hard competition is its city. I love that. Competition in a good way, huh? but the level of knowledge from, uh, we, have, uh, we are so many sommeliers here, older or younger, I mean, the level is high. And working with such a big list, how do you keep up with uh, more than 2,000 wines? You, you, just, you just throw yourself in it and you, and you try to not panic. So um, maybe trying to not panic, it was what I learned the most so far. Oh, really? There was a level of confidence I had to... I had to, yeah, to uh, compensate a little bit with that. <laughs> That's again funny because if I had one stereotype about French and maybe French women, it's that they're very confident. We play well. Yeah, the confidence. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how long has it been now at Le Bernardin? Le Bernardin, uh, a year. Okay. A year at the wine, at Aldo Sam Wine Bar, a year at Le Bernardin. And where do you think this is going to go? I mean, what's the goal at this point? Uh, should I announce today that I will uh, steal Aldo's place? No, no <laughs> I don't I mean, want to. <laughs> do you think it's always going to be restaurants for you? Or? No, um, it will be an experience. How long? Um, I don't have the answer yet, but I want to. I, I want to experience also the winemaking again. I'm. It's still something that I need to figure out. But I love to have different projects at the same time. And I think human being, we have so many sides and so many skills. I don't want to limit myself to only one one side. Please no. So sommelier on the floor will be for a certain moment. And uh, how long, I don't know. But so far, I'm, I'm at Le Bernardin. So far, I'm there. And then, you know, because it's always interesting to ask, well, what do you think about American wine culture, like the culture of wine here? I think there is, this, there is a great story. There is definitely something very strong, post-prohibition, all the Californian way also to make wine, and this vision of wine. That they, have, they are so free, to me, to make wine, with less rules that we have in France. They... It's more an open um, way to make wine. I feel like you have more possibilities to make wine in California, for instance, than in very controlled appellation under European uh, system. So the culture here is more, it, it reflects this, the culture of wine here is more open and more dynamic, more young, but not less serious, very serious. Uh, there is definitely big backbones, I feel, to this wine culture. By leaving her winemaking home, Marie Veron found out that she'd like to make wine. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Livy. Thank you very much. Marie Veron of Chateau Borgneuf in Pomerol and also Le Bernardin Restaurant here in New York. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.